Author Peter Fitzpatrick has managed to complete The Impossible, a double biography of a father and son who were adept at leaving very little personal information. Peter has managed to garner copious information, however, through the detective-like approach of the curious biographer. Using this, he has recorded perfect portraits and extended our insight by installing creative but inspired accounts of what it was to be these men at crucial stages of their brilliant lives. He couldn't have picked more disparate and fascinating familial duo. The two Thrings, Peter's biography, is an account of both, Frank Thring Sr. and Frank Thring Jr., The two men have had considerable influence in the evolution of an Australian entertainment industry. Frank Senior, a sideshow conjurer turned film impresario who gave the nation its first foray into celluloid storytelling. And Frank Jr., the son, a flamboyant and outrageous actor of distinctive voice and girth who made his dent in Hollywood and returned to Australia to chart idiosyncratic roles in the theatre eventually succumbing to self-parody and sorrow. A father and son who never really knew each other, but who forged careers in storytelling, sharing a considerable likeness in physicality and in their protection of self. Peter Fitzpatrick is a former adjunct professor of performing arts at Monash University, a writer and director of theatre, and he was awarded a National Biography Award for his work, the two Thrings. He joined stages to expand on our knowledge of this showbiz dynasty and to ponder the process of writing and the craft of biography. Yes, well, I thought, look, I, I, everybody knew or thought they knew a lot about Frank Jr. Uh, and almost everybody had a, had a story and a passable imitation. But uh, nobody that I knew, including me, uh, knew much about his dad. And I thought that his father was a a neglected figure in Australian theatre and film. Um, uh, and I can't quite put my finger on why. I suppose just because his story in the end was one of noble failure, but um, Australians are normally pretty good at celebrating that, so I don't know why Frank Thring kind of fell through the grid. But it's certainly true that Frank Thring Sr., had he not died prematurely at 53, uh, would have transformed the history of Australian film because when he died, he'd just cemented a deal with 20th Century Fox to exhibit, not only to exhibit Australian film um, in the States, but to um, to do a kind of exchange, reciprocal thing with actors and directors, which would have been really interesting, I think. Mm. Uh, it seemed to be reasonably even-handed reciprocity. Uh, maybe you could um, uh, answer some of these, these uh, apocryphal stories, whether they were based in truth or not. The one about, you know, he, he, Frank Thring Jr. was a guest uh, villain, I guess, on uh, the... Uh, iconic Australian TV series Skippy. Yes, <clears throat> and 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 they used to put the kangaroo in a bag. Yes, and he made a comment about, well, if that's where the star goes, what sort of dressing room are they going to have for me? That's right. Is, well, is that a? I believe that to be true. I mean, you can never be sure about these things because sometimes people think that they heard things at the time that uh, you know have been created by subsequent publicity. But I think that uh, I reckon that one is is true. Um, but a number of the stories that Frank told about himself clearly weren't true and, and, and are very disprovable, um, but they made great stories. And he was one of those fellows who likes to fictionalise his life, I think, partly as a self-protective thing and partly because it was entertaining to do so. There was also a story about a drama class as a young boy at Melbourne Grammar. Yes. And they were all asked to sort of uh, mime a tram ride. 
That's and right. he couldn't do it because he arrived at school chauffeur-driven. He arrived in the family roles, and in fact, the drama teacher who asked who asked him to do the impersonation and clearly then understood why he couldn't um, was regularly being picked up by the thring chauffeur on the way to as, as Frank drove to school, rode to school. Uh, the drama teacher was one of a number who'd be you know forlornly waiting at the tram stop and given a ride and, and got a ride, which the other kids must have thought was wonderful. Yeah. But I think that one is true too. But no one's ever disproved any of these tales. Whereas some of the some of the other stories about Frank, in particular about his marriage to Joan Cunliffe, are readily disproved because um, the story grew that Frank, because everybody thought it was a very improbable thing to have occurred. Frank had a celebrity wedding at Stratford with Laurence Olivier as uh, giving away the bride. Trader Faulkner was his best man. Vivian Lee was matron of honour, so it wasn't a bad cast. Um, this was during the rerun of Titus Andronicus at Stratford. And um, Frank was a very jolly groom, lots of excellent photographs of him, clearly enjoying the occasion. But the story that was put around when the, when the marriage dissolved after nine months, on the grounds of non-consummation, um, the stories that were put around were that Frank had only gone through this this charade of a wedding um, in order to become eligible for his inheritance because his father, who must have been very prescient when he died, when Frank, young Frank was 10, was very concerned that he may be homosexual and uh, that he needed to have some sort of insurance against this. So there was a provision that, allegedly, that Frank would only come into his inheritance if, um, uh, if he married. And once having done that, of course, who needed the bride? Um, but the truth is that, that was no, there was no such codicil in his father's will. Um, he was left everything unencumbered. And um, according to Joan, his wife, who I, who, who I did talk to a couple of times in London about 14 years ago, when I was uh, in the early stages of writing the Thrig book, um, she was adamant that um, it had been, you know, they'd, they'd married and they hoped to have children. And um, the marriage, she said... She said, well, they said it wasn't consummated. It sort of was. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it was one of those line ball things. Um, yeah, so she was, she was wonderfully candid about it, but, but maintained that, that it was just a terrible sadness that um, Frank wanted to be something that he couldn't be and, uh, and that she'd hoped that he could because uh, she'd known him for nearly 10 years. Uh, they used to go out to the movies together, uh, stuff like that. Well, let's talk about the, the things a little bit more yeah, sure. later in the interview. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to know more about you um, as, as a writer and uh, the biographer of this uh, story. Um, let's, let's start at the very beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up... Um, well, my, my strongest memories in growing up were in a milk bar in Garden Vale, 151 Martin Street, if anybody would care. I, I don't think there's a plaque there. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Not yet. But uh, um, we were there for a number of years. Um, so... Uh, I, I was a very solitary child, uh, so I played a lot of football against myself in the backyard and almost always won. Um, and uh, um, I went to school at Halebury College, which was my parents' notion of giving me a great chance in life. And Halebury is a... Well, I won't say anything ill about it, but um, uh, I look back and think it was a very, in many ways a very limiting education, which was perhaps a reflection of boys' schools in general uh, at the time, and certainly of, of Australian culture at the time. But it, um, anyway, uh, it gave me a fair degree of, of confidence, I suppose, that 
I would be able to do things that I wanted to do. So I think from that point of view, it was a good thing. What started your passion for theatre? Was there a, a drama program at the school? Or? No. Oh, look, I did, I did play Joseph Porter in HMS Pinnacle. The school had an annual Gilbert and Sullivan production uh, in which all that was required really was that you learned your lines. But the, the director, that's really what she gave us, uh, and we managed to do that. And then I was um, uh, Coco in the Mikado in my last year at the school. So that was my, my drama experience, apart from playing in a... In a brown bodysuit. I played a woodsman at uh, Box Hill Grammar's grade one um, uh, annual production. I think it was something like, might have been Hansel and Gretel or something like that. So I was kind of, yeah, that was my, that was my debut. Isn't that the, be- the beauty of, of a school drama experience, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after leaving yeah. school? They're the memories which stand out for us. They um, are, actually. Not necessarily the, yeah. what we did in class in maths on a particular day or, no. or on the sporting field, but, but the school plays. And look, and really, um, in terms of forming relationships with people too, I think that the intensity of a sharing a production is, even though the person that you're acting with may have little in common with you in any other respect, but somehow or other they become bound to your story for life because you did that that thing together. So I've, I've always thought that that was one of the arguments later on when I came to be involved in teaching um, in, in theatre um, and people would put the point of view that uh, you know, 95% of your graduates are unemployed. How can you justify this? And I said, well, they go in knowing that. I always tell them that. And, um, and there's something very uh, empowering about that kind of education and the kinds of people that you find through it so uh, yeah and I think that probably does um, I don't see any of my cast members from the Hansel and Gretel production but uh, yeah you could probably recall their names I can actually yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, Bill Corker was Hansel Hansel. (laughs) (laughs) so um, did you go on to did you have a a career as an actor or you went off and became a teacher no I I I became, I, I became involved, again, accidentally, like most things in my life, I think, I became involved with the City of Moorabbin Theatre Group, who were very active, local, very conservative. We'd only did English farces. Um, and we performed at the East Bentley Hall in um, Tucker Road, I believe, in East Bentley. Um, and I, for, for a, a joyous period, um, I was the leading the juvenile lead, the romantic lead usually, uh, for about three years or so, which actually coincided with going to university. And, and so for a while, and in retrospect, I, I, I'm sorry for this, I kind of didn't get involved much in university theatre until my last couple of years when I became very heavily involved. But um, in that early period, uh, that was my acting. And really all that I learned from that was one of, the, one of my directors told me always to stand in the three-quarter which is difficult sometimes. Some, there's some actors, actions that are very difficult to perform in the three-quarter. So the three-quarter is a position where you can kind of uh, engage, engage with the audience, exactly. but also your fellow actors. Exactly. Right. Well, it's got to be open to the audience, <laughs> because who knows when you might tip them a wink, you know, which we did a lot of it. Yes. City of Rabbit. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and then I became involved in some... Uh, in a fair bit of student theatre at Monash University, which is where I later taught. Um, and then I went away... Uh, after that, I was in England for three years. I got a, um, uh, 
a scholarship to study at Cambridge, which was a lot of fun, but I had no drama there at all. There you go. Oh, really? Oh. I should have. I mean, really, that, again, wasted opportunities. Did you see any there, but the, the Cambridge yeah, players? Yeah, I did. Or, I did. Yeah. Footlights Review and that kind of stuff right. was still so very, very big. Who was performing in those? Um, by that stage, they'd lost the, the Python group had all moved on but um, gosh I can't remember Peter this. Cook Dudley Moore they, they They're moved early. on a bit earlier yeah. right yeah so um, yeah it was very it was a very lively place theatrically and I and I and I went to a pub where a lot of the theatricals hung out which was called I think the Eagle's Nest or something like that um, so I saw a bit of them but I was actually I actually did a lot of reading <laughs> it was a bit boring my time at Cambridge but good very good so what brought you back to Australia uh, look Weird. This was very weird because this was now 1971 and um, I was, I'd married and I was uh, 23, something like that, 24. Um, and um, I'd, um, I'd formed this view that although I was actually doing quite well academically, that um, what I was really born to be was a novelist. There was no evidence for this at all, but I just had this this view. This calling. Exactly. <laughs> and I had this problem that I, w- I was offered a temporary position, actually, at the college that I was at at Cambridge. Uh, but I declined it, and the reasons for that were that I needed to get back to see my father, who I was convinced was going to die. I was amazed that he'd survived as long as I'd been away. Uh, and indeed, he did die within the first year that I was back. So I was glad I did, from that point of view. But... Um, I um, I had this problem. I had my last conversation with my father before he died was one in which uh, I had to tell him that I thought I might go back to England to become a great writer. And um, his last words to me, indeed, were something along the lines of, "Well, whatever, whatever's, uh, whatever you want to do is is okay with me." My mother was distraught at this prospect. And then when my father died, um, I suppose I felt bound to stay in Melbourne uh, because she was alone and, yeah. So I then got a job at Monash, initially a a fixed-term one and then a permanent one. And I remember when I came down to tell my mother that, because my mother had been, I think through this period, very nervous that I was just going to disappear again. And so I went down to her place to say that they'd offered me a job at Monash and that I'd accepted it. And she said, oh, Pete, she said, I'm so pleased to see you well dug in at last. (laughs) And that was kind of what it felt like. Um, And in fact, I spent the next uh, 35 years teaching at Monash. So it was really a pretty deep internment. Um, but I, I was lucky at Monash in that I taught initially a lot of um, part of the English, English literature program and then moved increasingly into teaching in theatre. So I had some clearly defined kind of chapters where I moved. My teaching was different. Um, it came to involve increasingly doing productions. Um, and so I did about 30 uh, in my time at Monash. First one was in a Voices, the Louis Nara play, uh, which was 1980. And then um, I sort of did one every year or two after that. And then from about 1995, which was when I became head of performing arts there, I was doing at least one, possibly two a year. Uh, So I started with Merrily We Roll Along, and that was my first musical. 
and all the stuff I directed after that was, was musical theatre. I did five Sondheim shows. So I, had, I was very blessed. I was very free um, because as the head of the program, I could determine to some extent what happened in it. Um, and as the person who had to sign off on budgetary expenses, um, which I've since found since I left Monash, are much much more of a problem uh, when you're doing theatre. But uh, So I, I was able to choose the things that I thought I would like to be to direct and my students would like to do. And so, um, yeah, that was a very... Um, most of that was a very, very rewarding time of my life. Um, I lost my dad. I'm just harking back a little bit yeah. here. Um, yeah. A couple of years ago. And um, something which, which nobody really prepares you for is the dependence of, of, of the other parent... On yourself then, yes, um, so yeah. I can really relate to that—not that pressure, but that feeling of responsibility, to sort of to look after your mum. Yeah, and look, my mum had no money. Um, she and my father had never had any really, uh, because the milk bar back in Garden Vale had lost bucket loads. Um, and she was also of that generation of women who don't drive. Right. And there she is, marooned down in dark, darkest by Morris. And really no way of getting anywhere. So, yeah, it, it does... When you're the only child, as I was, um, there are particular um, things that go with the territory. Mm. Which, of course, I resented, which was very unfair to her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you're at Monash. Yeah. Were you able to still indulge your love of writing or the the, the, um, the search to be the, the, the great Australian novelist? No, look, the, novel, the novelist thing took a back seat. Um, and part of that, again, I, I look back at everything that happened to me and I, and I think I didn't plan to do that. Um, so I, I have a... Um, my, the, I, was, I had no publications to speak of and that was becoming a bit of a, a problem uh, because universities were really expecting that if you were going to keep your job, let alone advance in it, you really should be publishing widely. And I'd been around for half a dozen years and had nothing much to show for it. So, fortuitously, uh, uh, a then-professor of English who loved a long lunch, had a long lunch with, with a publisher from Edward Arnold who'd been sent out to bring some civilization to the colonies, and partly because I think he probably had lunch most of the day. Um, so he was looking for somebody to write something about... They had a, a cult... They were setting up a series which was going to be about Australian culture. And through that connection, I was asked if I'd like to write a book about Australian theatre of the time. And so I wrote a book called After the Doll, which was about what happened from, you know, Lawless Play and then thereafter, um, which, in retrospect, I, when I dip back into it, which I do about once every five years, I think... Um, it's not badly written, but I think it's a very literary mm. treatment of theatre and um, I wouldn't have to do it very differently. But then that would be true of almost everything I've ever done. <laughs> I, would now, you know, I think there is a certain advance in, um, in wisdom, maybe, uh, expertise certainly in some areas. So that was my first book. And really then that was a funny period for Australian academic treatments of theatre because... Um, there were a number of initiatives happening, particularly Currency Press publishing Australian play scripts for really the first time, and that was an extraordinary thing that Philip Parsons and Catherine Brisbane set up, um, where you know they were prepared to take massive losses on 
most of the things they put out hardly sold a copy. Yeah. Um, but you'd get a Williamson onto a course somewhere and you'd be right, you know. Yeah. And, and that, so that period for me, which was from about 79, uh, was one where the writing that I was doing was predominantly about other people's work. Uh, and I did a lot of that. And um, uh, I wrote books on David Williamson and Stephen Sewell as well. Who I admired a lot. Alex Buzo. Alex Buzo. I wrote some, you know, I didn't write a full book about him. No, right. that wasn't mine. But I've written written pieces in various places. Right. Because it was just a, a sense that people were, were willing suddenly to take Australian writing for the theatre seriously. Um, and so I was fortunate in being around at the time as one person who was interested in doing that sort of stuff. Were you able to write your own theatre? Were you writing plays? And, no, no. No? Not at all. Not, not at all. No desire or... Interest or um, look at, at about the point where that might have happened. I think my problem has been that I've always wanted to do several things, and sometimes just lacked the um, uh, the determination to choose one over the others. You know, because they're all I enjoy them all. So through the eighties, I was doing a lot of writing about Australian theatre and particularly about plays. So it was really the study of drama more than theatre that I was doing. Yeah. I did a bit of theatre history as well, but that was also a period where I was doing a lot of production, usually large cast stuff and things like, um, Caucasian Chalk Circle and uh, Cloud Nine, um, and a bunch of plays that I thought were sufficiently weird to do. And, um, and then when, when, uh, I found myself in the 1990s, I actually started writing some fiction and I published a couple of novels. I wrote one uh, which wasn't published for about 12 years um, called Promontory, which was based on my um, deep spiritual connection with the landscape of Wilson's Promontory and my fascination with the early history of... um, uh, of bushwalkers there, so the, it's a it's a metaphysical crime novel with a powerful sex scene in chapter seven, and it um, it uh, it follows a group of fictional group of of bushwalkers from Melbourne University who go hiking there in 1922, and it was based on a fair bit of research, which taught me a lot about um, about that part of the world and that time. It always fascinated me that. There were photographs of women wading ashore in, in full flowing dresses with picture hats on and, and that you'd see photographs of, of bushwalkers down there and the men were always in three-piece suits with ties. And I just thought there's this weird conjunction of, you know, wildness of the place and the extreme civilization uh, that these people seem to be bringing with them. How did they reconcile those two things? I mean, what... What happened when you needed to take a pee in the bush? You know, all of yeah. that sort of stuff was yeah. part of part of my fascination with with what that would be. So that was called Promontory, and that I wrote in about ninety one two. I fiddled around with it over a number of years, and finally it was published in about two thousand and one. Can I pick your brain as a as a writer? Then, how do you write a powerful sex scene? Um, well, it's 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 probably. Um, because uh, everyone, everyone has their own experience kind of, kind of, of what one is. Well, look, it was it was a it was a funny scene because um, it was one of those. It's a sex scene which which isn't a sort of extended seduction. It kind of again happens accidentally, so that suddenly these two who have had this chemistry, male and female, had this this chemistry, and they go 
bathing at a place called Fairy Cove, which does exist yep. on the prom, and it's one of the most gorgeous little parts of the world. You have to climb down a very dangerous set of steps to get to it, but it's worth it because it's so pristine. And I've never seen anybody there when I've been there. So it always struck me as a fabulous place to have sex if yeah. you had... But, it, but my, my characters, if they did intend that, didn't know that they intended it because they found themselves there and jumped in the water and, you know, take clothes off to dry. One thing and another happened. And, and so my, my central character, who's a guy who... Uh, has a problem, I think. Um, he's strangely devoid of passion most, much of the time. Uh, his partner, the young woman, is much more in touch with herself. But um, he somehow or other falls upon her, and, and they have a. It's, so it's a sex scene with sand. Right. You know, which which is an <laughs> which important is reality to absolutely, remember. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah. So that now, was. I asked, not, not to be a perv, but you know, I've rarely read a sex scene where you know it, it's not. Um, there's an abundance of metaphor or it's too graphic that yeah. it's just unsexy yeah, exactly. or, or whatever. So, yeah. Well, I hope mine is sort of within the bounds of credibility. It's not because... Uh, I mean, I, th- I, I tried to describe what it was like to kiss someone and, and because you're not, you haven't actually kissed them in that way before, you can't get the angle right and your yes. teeth kind of clack together. Clack, and yeah, you, yeah. Does that work? So I, I wanted to get that sense of awkwardness as well as, um, as passion. Um, but, yeah. The, uh, the reality of it all. That's what, that yeah. was the plan. Yeah, 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 yeah I don't yeah. know. I haven't read it for a number of years. But I, I don't, so I don't know how successful it was. But it felt to me okay at the time. So, so when did you move into the, the biography form? Um, at about that time, actually, mid-90s, I wrote a book on Louis and Hilda Essen. Pioneer players. Pioneer players. Um, and um, that was great fun. Um, I admired Louis, although he, he's another one of those stories of somebody who, um, you know, he's, he's like Farlap or Liz Darcy. He's, he's, you know, he, he, he is a national hero partly because... Um, his story ends so sadly or disappointingly. Um, so Louis really thought that he was going to be the fa- father of Australian theatre. He liked being called that from quite an early age. And he kept his diaries, which were immensely useful to me, but they were clearly written with an idea that someone would come along one day and write about all this, and so he'd better get it all clear and well-phrased and so on. Um, so, uh, but Louis's his last... The last of his plays to be performed, to have a premiere, um, a couple were revived. There's a little one-act play called The Drovers, which a lot of people could put on bills of one-actors. Um, but the last of his full-length plays to get a, a production was The Bride of Gospel Place, I think 1926, but this is a while since I wrote that book. This one of the, one of the rare moments where he allowed a bit of self-conscious humour to intrude. He said that uh, the that uh, the show had closed tonight after one consecutive performance. and uh, But next time, you know, there was a lot to be a lot to learn because the fact the wall had fallen over during... It was just one of those nightmare right. nights in the theatre where all goes wrong. Well, you, who, who was Hilda? She was Hilda, the, Hilda. the devoted wife or was she a, a playwright? She was a theatre director herself. Right. She, she, she had a, a major career as a doctor of medicine. She was one of three women, young women, who'd graduated in her year at Melbourne University... Uh, because it wasn't at all a usual thing for women to be um, graduating at doctors in that time. And she was the, served as the Deputy Office, uh, Medical Officer of Health 
for the City of Melbourne for a number of years and had a big career, really, in that area. But she was also... She'd been an actor at, at university. Uh, she'd always liked that sort of thing. Um, and she'd been very encouraging of Louis' writing. Um, and in about 1933, um, Hilda became involved with New Theatre Melbourne, which was the Socialist Theatre Company. Um, and she became basically their their go-to director. Um, she, I don't think she'd ever made a formal study of Stanislavski, but she was one of the first people to bring his principles of directing to um, to Australia. I think just from her general reading. So a lot of her stuff was, you know, heavily influenced by that. She was under a lot of pressure at New Theatre to uh, to do Soviet realism stuff, which was one. You know, another step on, but um, she tended to do interesting things. Um, she was a remarkable one, I think, and and she was at that stage shackled. I suppose it's, that's an unfair way of putting it. She she she'd married this marvelously talented man who really was always going to be do something great until about the age of late thirties, where it became apparent that nothing was going to happen, and so. Here was this brilliant woman who had this very um, prominent life of her own, uh, both professionally and in the theatre, and um, uh, she was married to a man who was really struggling with defeat um, and also, uh, like the, my Thring subjects, had a, had a fondness for alcohol, which, which could be a bit disabling at times. Um, so Hilda... Hilda's story is also a great romance because Hilda also left letters. She was a... Her closest friend was Catherine Susanna Pritchard, a writer in Western Australia. And Hilda and Catherine exchanged... wrote to each other at least once a week over many, many years. Um, when Hilda died in 1953, Catherine fulfilled a contract which they had made, which was that whenever, when any of them, either of them died, the other would destroy all their correspondence because it was so private. Right. Um, and Rick Throssell, who was Catherine's son, remembered seeing his mother dropping the sheets into the fireplace. But she kept, I think, 24 letters, if I remember rightly, which were in the National Library, that she thought were of interest, not that they weren't personal and they were of interest for the sort of national estate. Well... They are so personal, you know, they are blindingly, almost not embarrassingly personal, but, you know, you feel this woman is, giving, is lifting the, the veil on her, her emotional life. Uh, As a biographer, do you feel that, that you're, you're intruding at that sort of time? Or, yes, is, that, or, is, that, or is that gold to you it as is, well? It is gold. It's, it's pri- primarily gold, but it's also the sense that you've got to be wary with it, that you know that Catherine probably made a mistake in preserving the letter if, if all his intentions had been, had been properly carried out. Um, but it was so wonderful. I, um, and I think it... I, I remember that um, Louis and Hilda's son and daughter-in-law had a lot of reservations about publishing this kind of intimate material, but I maintain, and I think they came to agree, that... It actually made her, made her an even more wonderful personage, you know, that it rounded out a figure who otherwise would have been um, forgotten. Perhaps a little, well, and, 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 and the sum of her achievements, you know. Mm. Really, when you write a biography, I think you, you don't just want to celebrate somebody's um, uh, 
successes, you, you want to have some sense of the vulnerabilities that they have to grapple with, as we all do, and, and the, the sadness. And their flaws they as human beings. Exactly, yeah. 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 And there are subjects that um, uh, embrace the opportunity to have a biography yep. created about them. Yeah. Um, and then those subjects who are very personal and private yep. and who, um, who will have nothing of it. Yep. Um, which leads us into the three biographies. Yeah, yeah. Um, two men who were very private, very secretive. Mm-hmm. Yep. How did you go about sort of being detective with them and, and, and unearthing uh, well, with, information? Um, with, with Frank Senior, it was more difficult because almost nobody was still living who knew him personally. So I had a lot of Frank Thring's early life uh, was was masked in a kind of mystery because he was one of those self-made men who can only uh, advance by a bit of sleight of hand. And in fact, he began... The first thing we hear about him in his life was that he was a sideshow conjurer and that was a very useful metaphor for me. That's what he... You know, he there was always something up his sleeve. He always destroyed um, records. You know, you, you, I... He must have written to a lot of people, but they didn't keep his letters. He certainly never... You know, but I think the only letters that I ever found of his anyway were very formal, um, minimal. Uh, so he, he, he came across as a man who was um, disguising his origins, uh, which was Was he born important. in Australia? He was. He was born in Wentworth in New South Wales um, to a, an illiterate saddler and his uh, 15-year-old wife... Uh, who appears on the mar- on the marriage certificate as, as 18. Um, and really, all of Frank Senior's life, I, th- I think he, he became quite early habituated to uh, covering his traces. So one of the weird things about the book was that, you know, in the absence of letters and diaries, what can you fall back on? Well, one of the things you can is public documents. So you go to birth, marriages and deaths and you can see... Normally, they'll tell you factual things. Now, in, in Frank Senior's case, he never filled out one without lying. I mean, he distorted dates. He distorted. He, he gave his mother a completely new identity. Um, the, the identity he gave her, which was Laura McKenzie, um, comes up in a number of biographical dictionaries. Her name was actually Angelique MacDonald. And why would he do that? You know, and I think the only explanation is that he's a kind of compulsive. Um, Traces cover up. Uh, he he uh, he. Like, Is it like because he was up to no good, or well, I, I think I think out? a lot of I think a lot of his wheeling and dealing was a little bit shady. So so there's a famous story, which. I think is, is, is near enough to true, that um, when there was in, in the 1920s, when Frank before Frank began his own company, uh, he was general manager of Hoyts, and of an and on the board of a number of other companies, including his. His uh, great rival. Uh, so we were talking the twenties here, the twenties, late twenties. Yeah, yeah. So cinema, 20s. cinema is just arriving. Exactly. So we're still, we're still having, we've still got silent, silent cinema, uh, and um, the two, the two big figures are Frank, Frank Thring in Melbourne and Stuart Doyle in Sydney, whose who's, um, uh, his company is Greater Union, and they are engaged through the through the twenties in major. Theatre building, so Fring, Thring builds the Regent chain throughout Australia, and um, and Doyle builds the state chain. 
and each one had a very clear consciousness of trying to be bigger and better than the others. So that was going to say, they're, they're huge, they're opulent huge. temples, yeah, well, aren't they? There are yeah. five regions, and I can't remember now how many states, but yeah, they are. And they, and, and they were like theme parks in the way that they were built. They're much more, you know, conventional theatres now, but... Um, they were, you know, you, it, it was a total experience that well, they offered. I, I did a tour of the State Theatre recently in Sydney, yeah. and you know, just the bathroom. There's the the Pioneer Room, and, yes, and the Medieval right. Room. They've yes. all got themes. The, yeah. the bathrooms and toilets. That's it's extraordinary right. because I, I guess uh, going out to the cinema was was an experience. Yes, that, uh, you had to treat your audience. Yeah, that's right. And and um, yes, th- these theme rooms and 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 the sense that the two men were in competition, so each had to find something, an angle that the other hadn't yet found. So that was building all through the 20s. But in 1927, um, the government some moved on the notion of collusive practice in, in the cinema. So the notion was that, you know, you want to have a competitive environment, but here they were, the two major companies working in some kind of, um, of cosy tandem, uh, each respecting the other's right, you know, so Doyle respected that Thring could have Melbourne as long as he could keep Sydney. That was a sort of deal although Three and Doyle both moved into other states too. But anyway, um, and there was a Royal Commission at which Frank was called um, and was asked at the Commission uh, whether he was a shareholder in Great Union Theatre uh, while being a major, the, the major shareholder in Hoyts Australia. And he said, no, I'm not. I have no shares in that company. Are you sure? You know? uh, and he said, no. And the story goes that he could say that because he'd sold his shares at 10 o'clock in the morning and he bought them back at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that was <laughs> the kind of operator that he was, I think. Um, so how did, how did he reach a position running Hoyts from such an impoverished child? Oh, look, I mean, was yeah. that just all wheeling? And did, was he a, you said he's a sideshow conjurer. Yep. So did he work in carnivals? and He did for a while. Way and then he got involved in film. Uh, he... He, just, he, be, he fabricated his credentials as a bootmaker in Adelaide and married um, a woman somewhat older than he, um, uh, who he immediately took off to the wilds of the west coast of Tasmania because he decided the future was in film. And um, he, um, he, I mean, it was such an intrepid thing to do. Uh, his wife was, a, you know, kind of, one gathers a fairly... Um, a very respectable milliner, and suddenly she's been taken out to these mining camps where, you know, the ratio is is about twenty to twenty men to one woman, and any woman is a, a figure of great interest to the to the inhabitants. And also, it was very wild country in terms of the weather. Um, and there, there was string on on the open train with all of his film equipment, and he would travel around from Strawn to Queensland to to Queenstown to Zeehan and those sorts of towns. Um, so he was a projectionist. Exhibiting film, right, yeah. yeah. And he would also do... He'd sometimes do acts as well. He, and in fact, his wife, he got up to do little comedy routines and he'd do conjuring routines as part of the bill. So that and often be a local singer would, would, would come on at some point. Uh, there'd usually be a newsreel as well as the main feature. Um, and he did that for a couple of years. On the back of it, he applied for a job to take over the management of Kreitmeyer's Waxworks in Burke Street, Melbourne, which is a famous waxworks, the owner of the owner of which, the founder of which had recently died, and his widow was looking for some young man to come in and take over the joint. He came to her with a pitch that he thought the future was in film, and that you know, rather than just showing these inert bodies, 
uh, they should have a back room where they could show some newsreels at least. So you know, people are looking at Edward the Seventh or whatever um, in you know in the lobby where he's just a dummy um, can go and see him actually moving and waving to the crowd in the back room. So he set up a little theatre out in the back, um, and this work this was very successful. Um, he had now got himself a rich patron who was Mrs. Kreitmeyer, who assisted him in in leasing a number of cinemas around Melbourne. Uh, he bought one in Brunswick, the, the others he, he was leasing. And his tendency was always, he's one of, I, I don't know how some people managed to do it. Normally in uh, takeovers, the larger entity gobbles up the smaller, but somehow or other Frank was able to sell his company in a way that kept, left him in charge of the new conglomerate. So he was able to persuade J.C. Williamson's, who had a film division, that that needed to be separated from their theatre uh, um, activities. So when J.C. Williamson Film took him over as a potential threat to that business, he was able to present a convincing case that he should run J.C. Williamson Film into the future. So from there, um, he traded up progressively to to Hoyts, and that I mean, that, that was extraordinary. Uh, he was now playing golf with the Talises down at Portsea uh, and the Tates, knew, knew those families very well. So he was moving in very exalted circles for a man who had virtually no education. Um, so that, that was part of a ploy to um, work his way into the Melbourne establishment. I think, so. I think he was very those conscious connections. of that. I don't think he was ever any good at golf, but he, but he played it a lot uh, with that in view. Um, and uh, so by the early 20s, he bought Rylands, the, the family home in Turak, uh, in 1923, and he also had a place at Portsea. Uh, he had a country home as well, um, and he drove... He, he himself drove a Pontiac, but he had a Rolls for, for Olive, his wife, to drive. And Olive, who became his wife, was the daughter of Mrs Kreitmeyer, and so... Conveniently, as it happened, Frank's first wife, Grace, when he moved to Melbourne, had gone back to Adelaide to her parents, and while they weren't formally separated, it seems pretty clear that that was the understanding. However, the complication was that Grace was pregnant at the time that he moved to Melbourne, um, but she and her daughter remained in Adelaide, where her parents looked after them, um, until her death in, I think, 1920. Uh, whereupon Frank immediately married Olive. When I say immediately, it was you know, perhaps six weeks after. Right. He said he'd been a widower for nine months on the wedding certificate. Um, uh, and um, and so he was kind of then cemented into the Kreitmeyer's wealth. Uh, did he, did he have an eye for the ladies? Is that what possibly could it's have broken not, up his first marriage? It's not, that's not clear. I think it was more his opportunism, but, it, but it, it must have been the case, although there's no record of it, that he and Olive were a bit of an item during the 10 years that he was living apart from his wife. Right. Um, when she died, his daughter, Lola, uh, came back to live in Melbourne, and that became a major problem, I believe, in his relationship with Olive, because Olive was very reluctant to accept a stepchild, especially when, a few years later, she had her own boy, Frank Jr., um, in 1926. And so she wanted, very obviously, to, it seemed to... Um, to see have as, have as little as possible to do with Lola. So Lola, although the family was living in Turak, 
and Lola was sent to school just three blocks away. Lola went there as a boarder and during the long Christmas vacation the school had a special holiday program where Lola could stay um, and so she really saw her parents, her step-parent, her stepmother. Oh, that's father. awful. Terrible, yeah. terrible. So what, what happened to Lola in the end? Did she, uh, did she stay in Melbourne? Lola did, yes. Um, she, um, she became... I think the, the subtext, and there is only subtext to read, there are no, there's no text about any of this. The subtext is, I think, that there was a major... It was a major point of tension between Frank and Olive that she was so closed to his daughter. And so when she left school, um, the first thing that Frank did was to get her a position with the film company that he'd just established. FT Films? FT Films. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the story, part of the story I should probably tell, this general ramble. Um, because, because we're talking about a very wealthy man at this point. So, yes, so he, yeah. he furthered his wealth by the establishment of being an early cinema pioneer. He was. Mm. He was our first major film entrepreneur, you'd have to say, in that he did make it a personal thing. It wasn't an outgrowth of a another company. It was his own company. His own studio. And he did that, exactly. His, he, he, um, he did that um, uh, at the time, at an extraordinarily unpropitious time. Um, Frank sold all of his holdings in, 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 in Hoyts, which were very um, lucrative. Um, and it was thought that he was doing that because this, we just had... Black Tuesday, I think it was, was when the Depression hit Wall Street. Um, on, the, on the same day, interestingly, um, His Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne, now Her Majesty's, burnt down substantially. Um, so it was a disastrous day all around. Um, and it looked like a disastrous day for Australian film because here was Thring apparently taking his money out of theatre and, and, and film, film and, and you know, hiding it under the bed or whatever you did in a financial crisis. But in fact, what he did very quickly was to redeploy all of that money to set up an Australian company, which was FT Films. Um, he took over the lease of His Majesty's Theatre in order to make, to make it initially a film studio. So he filmed, he ran two films at once, one uh, usually on the stage and the other in the pit. Uh, he filmed some interiors in, in some of the rabbit warren rooms around the back, uh, or at his, his personal uh, his family uh, holiday home at Portsea. Um, and, um, yeah, so here he was taking this extraordinary punt uh, because I suppose a rational economical thinker would, would say the last thing you want to be putting money into is entertainment at a time when people are really short of, of you know, can't get money to buy their their meals. That's often a time when, when entertainment flourishes, And that's isn't it? exactly yeah. what... He yeah. must have been prescient, because that's certainly true of Hollywood in that period. You know, it just boomed. And, and Thring did. You know, he, he, he judged that people would be prepared to go without a loaf of bread in order to get the just to entertainment escape. of a theatre, mm. of a film. So he set up a company which was to show films by Australian writers, um, featuring Australian actors. And, of course, this is precisely also coincident with the coming of sound film. So over in, over in the States you had one of the Warner Brothers, was it Samuel, saying, whoa, it's a, fad, it's a passing fad, you know. Who would ever want to hear an actor speak? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in Australia, Thring was, was daring enough to think that the future was in sound film uh, and, um, and in particular because he was dealing with what passed for Australian accents. I mean, they were the kind of vaguely anglicised Australian accents that actors always used 
in that time, but they were Australian nonetheless, and they were Australian locales and they were Australian scripts. And his um, films were, were subjects like um, uh, The Diggers, which yes. was a, a World War... Uh, World War One trench story, in the trenches where the orchestra pit at... Um, it's it, 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 it filmed it within the, the embers, not yeah. the embers, but the, but the, the yeah. remains of and the And in fact, the wreckage, yeah. of course, was fantastic, for just for a bit of decor. It was... Yeah. Um, all those broken seats. Um, and the sentimental bloke. The sentimental bloke. In yep. which Frank Jr. appeared as a baby. He does. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's... Um, uh, he Thring was... Uh, he had this, this sense, I think, of, of, of a kind of cultural mission about Australia. Um, and I'm not sure where that came from. Mm. Because the man that I'd been tracking up until his, uh, he got the top job at Hoyts, was probably a man who looked like an opportunist, uh, who wasn't a visionary in any sense, he, but with a very astute sense of what might turn a, a dollar. Um, but this, this was a kind of quixotic thing to do, I think, uh, you know, because it could have been disaster. Mm. The notion not only of who wanted to hear us actors speak, but who wanted to hear Australian actors speak mm-hmm. is a legitimate question. Um, so yeah, that was that was Frank and, and FT, which um, which was um, moderately successful, you'd have to say. And probably the, the the feature films don't hold up terribly well. A fair bit of creaky melodrama. He worked with actors who were either uh, old stage actors who had a lot of habits that weren't suited to film, or with very young actors who had a bit of authenticity but perhaps not much skill uh, but um, yeah I, th- I, I, I admired that and found it a wonderfully irrational thing for a man to do being Thring he also wanted to imp- every actor who worked for him in his films was also employed by him to, to perform at his theatre the Garrick Theatre in South Melbourne uh, so nobody was ever doing one project without preparing for another um, he liked to get his, his pound of flesh from well, I suppose all. those actors and those, they were just uh, grateful for a job Absolutely. at that time. Yeah. yeah, there wasn't a lot around. Yeah. And, um, and so the, the next, the other thing, which was really the thing that I first, that first made me interested in, in Thring, because I, I developed uh, a keen interest in musical theatre, which is something I'd always been engaged with, but not, not quite as... Um, um, not quite as dedicated a fashion as I came to be, and I set, I set up a music theatre course at Monash and did a lot of directing in that field. Um, and what fascinated me was Frank Thring's vision for Australian musicals. So he, he set up a competition for a new Australian musical. He thought we lacked that, uh, which was won by Varney Monk and Stuart Gurr with Collets in. Uh, and Thring ran that at The Princess, which by now he... Uh, effectively owned, um, for uh, six months in Melbourne in 1933. It started our glad, didn't it? It had yeah. our glad. He brought back a couple. Robert Chisholm, who's an English, an Australian who'd gone to England and had some success, uh, was the, the male lead. Um, so that was that was a big show, and, and, and it, it was the f- probably first and perhaps the last time that Spring Street in Melbourne has ever been blocked completely by traffic because opening night was just huge. And then it ran to pretty good houses, apparently, for six months. It went to Sydney, but in keeping with the common story of Melbourne shows that go to Sydney, it didn't do quite as well. It was still okay. And Thring 
uh, commissioned Varney Monk to write another musical off the back of that, which was called The Cedar Tree, which played in both both capitals, but um, uh, less successfully. Um, but that was interesting too, you know, that he, he was doing this stuff over here with film. He was doing this stuff with straight theatre. He's a huge figure in uh, the birth of the he, entertainment industry in Australia, he's, he's isn't massive. he? And, and as I said earlier, if, if he hadn't died when he did, he was about to do the transforming thing in Australian film. That Because Australian film, which had, had you know, colourful epochs along the way, there were moments when it seemed to be about to take off, but they were often disappointing, rather like Australian theatre, the green shoots which kind of then die off. Um, and the last half of the 30s wasn't the best time for Australian film, although there were good people like Charles Chabelle were making movies. But um, it was a, a small industry. And things move with 20th Century Fox um, uh, would have been extraordinary in, 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 in the way it would have changed the landscape. It was taking Australian films to America? Australian films to America, Australian actors to America, Australian directors to America, and reverse. We so, had to wait another 60 years or so before that We happened, did, really. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. That's right. So, um, yeah, he, I, I see him as a, as, a, as a visionary opportunist, and, and perhaps you've got to be... So how did he uh, die? He was, uh, contracted... A, he had a sore throat um, just after Frank Thring, at the age of 10, junior, had met... Shirley Temple, we call that terrible girl. Um, she probably felt the same reverse. But um, uh, they were in Hollywood and he went to the doctor with a sore throat and he um, had cancer of the esophagus and died from that very, very quickly. So when they came back to Melbourne, um, uh, there was a, an ambulance waiting to take Frank Senior to the Epworth and he was already really... Uh, in a very bad state. So Olive went off in the ambulance with, with Frank. But assembled on Station Pier were a group of all the journalists in Melbourne were there to greet him and to find out what this deal was. You know, it was an exciting time for a um, FT film and 20th Century Fox. So Olive commissioned young Frank, who put on his Melbourne grammar uniform for the purpose, to run the press conference on the, on the pier. Uh, about what the what the exciting plans might hold for the company. As a, he, as he was a, ten. <laughs> as a biographer, um, do you have to like your subject? I mean, did you like these men? The, this Frank Thring. I, I did. Look, I, I, the weird the, thing is that you. Or did it, did your opinion of them change as you were writing? Um, I think I became. Look, initially I, I found very frustrating the fact that they were both, as you were saying before, such non-disclosing people. That's to say Frank Senior didn't talk about himself at all and Frank Junior talked about himself all the time, but yes. completely in, in, in <laughs> largely <laughs> fictional ways. <laughs> so he was, a, he was a big liar. Um, and that was all a way of, of, as I'm sure he learnt very early at Melbourne Grammar, where he was a strange boy who, who was different from all the others. He didn't want to play foot footy and he wore a cloak to school and all those things that Barry Humphreys actually did 20 years later. Um, uh, but Frank must have evolved a tactic at Melbourne Grammar, I think, of, of, of uh, mocking himself before they could do it and he could always do it better than anybody else. So that self-preservation. Yeah. Sort of... And I think the whole story I mentioned before about the marriage 
that's self-protective. That, 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 that's, that's putting him in control of the situation. Of course he wouldn't be silly enough to think that he could live in a heterosexual marriage. <laughs> him? Come on. Um, uh, but according to, to Joan, he did believe that or, or, or hope for that. So he needed to re- recast that whole story uh, as, a, as a joke, uh, a joke against himself. So father and son, yep. two men who couldn't find at polar opposites, more, more polar opposites. No. I mean, Frank, uh, Frank Senior, the, uh, the entrepreneur, and, and Frank Junior, the actor, who yeah. was an outrageous, flamboyant homosexual yeah. in a time when yes. that Complete, was illegal. and Completely unashamed, yeah, yes, yeah, or, yeah. or uh, self-conscious. That's right, yeah. Weird, very because because Frank Senior, I, I I think was 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 uh, soundly heterosexual, you know. Uh, so well, that, well that, that persona of Frank that we know uh, post Hollywood when he came yeah, back to Australia, yeah. you know, was certainly that. But but was he like that as a young man? He was. He was. Yes, right, he okay. was outrageous. I think so. He was working. Um, his first job was in radio. At, at, one of the things that Frank Thring Senior did was to establish Three XY. Right. Because he never liked underusing resources, so, and he was he was running the princess. So he worked in radio as well, Frank. He did work in, okay, yeah, right, yeah. Okay, yeah. So he set up set up that um, that radio station in the um, in the basement of the Princess Theatre. That was where it ran from. And Joan Cunliffe, subsequently Frank Junior's wife, worked as a got a, the way they met was that she was the telephonist at the desk and receptionist for the for the radio station. Um, and Frank himself, Frank the son. Um, was employed there for the first time, I think, in 1946. He would have been 19. Um, and he um, he was running an afternoon program called Classics by Request. Um, and Joan told me the story of how she... She would never quite know whether he was going to be there when she met him, as she normally did outside the studio after his shift so they could go to the movies, because sometimes he was very drunk and she knew that he would be very drunk if he played a very long symphony, that the if he was playing short pieces, he was probably going to be okay. Um, so that dimension of his personality, and I think also probably the um, his his um, his secret life as a gay man, probably began pretty early. Frank tells the story of the of when he was. Um, he claimed that he failed intermediate at Melbourne Grammar about six times. Um, in fact, it was, I think it was only once, but he was sent to Taylor's Coaching College in the city, which was just near the uh, Hotel Australia bar, which was a pretty notorious Haunts spot. To, yeah. uh, so I, th- I think that Frank, Frank enjoyed those years very much. Uh, and the taste uh, for alcohol at such a young age yeah. as well. So, But that seemed... look. It's a very weird family, and, and Olive in, in this story is a very strange mother because although she was a an amazingly supportive woman who just, when Frank wanted to run to open up a theatre, the Arrow Theatre in Middle Park in Melbourne, um, Olive bankrolled it. Olive um, not only paid all the bills but donated her personal jewellery and costumes, which were pretty flamboyant. The, the um, Arrow, where he, one of his great, great hits was Ray Lawler's follow-up. Well, no, had he written the doll yet? Um, I'm talking about Hell's Bells, the yes, story that's of right. Henry VIII. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that was, a, that was a bit earlier. That was 46, and that was probably his biggest, um, his biggest role. Uh, but the, the Arrow Theatre came a little later, um, in about 52, 3. Right. And Frank 
managed to have a repertoire in which he could direct and play the lead in and design. There's uh, echoes of Orson Welles. All the plays it? that he wanted to do. So, mm. But the other thing that was interesting in that period was that um, Frank was always playing, because those roles tended to be roles played by grand men of the theatre, um, and even, you know, playing, uh, playing King Henry in you know, Hell's Bells in 46, he was then 20, uh, the, char- the character's meant to be 40, and, mm. and he played a succession of older men, you know, the, they tended to play King Lear when he was about was it Was he a he- heavy-set youth? Did he have he that was weight? He was a very big right. boy, right. very, yes. He was always, and that, in that respect, he closely resembled his father. Because he was quite father. tall as well. Yep, yeah. about 6'3", as they both were. They, the, the two men are identical in height and, and, and build, and, and if you took away the accoutrements of the tightly knotted tie of the father or the sort of bling of the sun, then you could... It's the same man. They're they're astonishingly similar. Um, Yes, so so the story of Olive and all this bankrolling the Aero Theatre and constantly promoting Frank's um, theatrical aspirations um, um, comes to involve Joan and indeed... uh, the centre of the story, and this is also picking up your comment about the drinking, Olive, Olive, after the death of Frank, and when she was set up back in Melbourne at Rylands, was a very prominent hostess, um, and she would give cocktail parties, which in the absence of another um, uh, consort, uh, would be her son. So people told the stories of turning up to Olive's parties, soirees, and there would be Frank, Jr., Aged about 12, let's say, in his tuxedo with a glass of uh, brandy because that went with that was part of the package. So he was, he was in his mother with his mother's encouragement, right? He, he was, was, act, he was imbibing act, from a young age, yeah, yeah. And, and trying to be a replacement for his father. Um, and in all of that, there's a story which I have no uh, conclusion to, um, in that despite. Olive's support of Frank until the day he died. At some point in the late 40s, they were living together at Rylands and they brought in Joan Cunliffe, this lass from East Preston, who, um, who was just a three employee at that point but had become Frank's kind of girlfriend. Uh, uh, we on a Saturday Arvo. Um, so Joan was living at the place but Joan was used by both Frank and Olive to convey messages from one to the other because, for whatever reason, at about somewhere in about 1947-48, Frank decided he would never speak to his mother again. Um, and I think he didn't. But they continued to live in the same house. And this all predates the days at the Arrow Theatre when she would always be in the front row leading the applause. Right. Um, and... Um, so Joan became. She said that you know, she found this really weird. Yes. Um, uh, and she never knew. She didn't know what had caused it. Why he hated his mother so much when she appeared to adore him and indulge him uh, at every turn. But something had happened. Was there anything eatable there? Do you think? You know, in the absence of Frank Senior, or something? There's something. In, there's something in that area, isn't yeah. it? I. I um, whatever it is, it's it's not. Something that anybody would have talked about, no, I suspect. No, no, no. Look, it's possible that because Frank um, was living 
relatively publicly a, a gay lifestyle, uh, despite the connection with Joan. Um, uh, it's possible that that got him into some sort of trouble and his mother perhaps didn't support him in that. I wondered yeah. about even if it went right yeah. back to Melbourne Grammar. But I don't know because there's no record of any of that. It's also possible that there's some... Um, well, in requiring him to be his father, there's this really weird sexual thing. Mm. Um, and it may be that as he grow, grew up, he became appalled at that or yes. resentful of it. Yeah. Um, but it's not a thing that he would ever even... I think it probably went so deep that he never told a joke about it. No. So when people would say, why do you hate your mother so much? He um, just shut them down. He shut them down. Yeah. Something very, very powerful in there, wow. which um, is, a, is a story that nobody will be able to tell, I imagine. Very affected way in which he spoke. Mm, mm. I mean, where did that come from? Is that his manifestation of how an actor should speak? Mm, or, mm. You know, very it was, good. <laughs> <laughs> it was very back in the throat or... It wasn't it? You know, yeah. that clenched jaw and... Uh, well, he, he... It was claimed to be... Um, a, 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 a disability, a, a form of cleft palate, which, right. which made it difficult for him to enunciate certain sounds. Certainly, essences were, and were, certainly later were, in were life, wonderfully was liquid. Very, but, yeah. But I, I suspect it's something that he he didn't feel he needed to lose, and in fact, came to trade on that it was part of a, a persona that he was very early in the process of constructing. That he was um, that he was unlike almost. Any other gay man in the public eye, he was he was unashamedly out. Um, he couldn't give a stuff about that. It seems. Did he ever find any happiness in a relationship, or was he a? I don't think so. A lone single man. I don't think life? so. And look, it, it seemed to me. I interviewed several of the the young men who were you know part of his world. Uh, all of the ones I spoke to uh, defined the relationship in terms of a kind of romantic avuncular thing, which of course was sexual, they knew that it was, but that nothing ever happened. Right. That um, two of them said, you know, he'd, he'd, there'd be a point in the evening, they'd go back to his place for brandy, and he'd, he'd, and, and he'd put an, a hand on the, on, on the thigh, oh, yeah. and they'd say, if they said, don't do that, Frank, or push it away, that was, that was fine. So I think he was, a, he didn't want to imperil those relationships, which I think were very idealistic, about young men and young women too. There are stories of him sort of breaking up in tears watching Olympic athletes and so on, both six, and particularly young men though, I think. But I, I think that that meant that he came to compartmentalise his, his sexuality between the, these romantic um, pursuits of beautiful youths and fair amount of rent boy stuff. I think the, the, there was right. quite a bit of that that went yeah. on. So I think, I think he um, he liked to keep he liked to keep one world kind of pristine, and, and which freed the other world to be whatever it needed to be. He wore a lot of black. He did. Always wore black. Um, was that to um, perpetuate the the image of villain or? Uh, um, was he in mourning? Um, That's right. Was no, it was a favourite colour, wasn't it? And indeed, a lot of Rylands was... Um... He repainted. As soon as Olive died, he repainted the, the place black and even had a black swimming pool, which he never used. But um, he... Uh, yeah, I think there is that line. There's a 
terrific moment in at the opening of <laughs> Chekhov's The Seagull. Do you know that? You know the one that's, I think that's what you're quoting, where um, where the hapless suitor Medvedenko says to Marsha, Marsha, why do you always wear black? And she says, I am in mourning for my life. <laughs> and you think, is that a joke? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that would be... So I think that Trank, in a sense, would have understood the tone of that, that it's a multi-tonal thing, mm. that it involves a genuine sense of unease, dissatisfaction. He really became a, a recluse uh, at Rylands and then even more pronounced at, uh, at um, his little house in, in Fitzroy where he had chains across the gate. He, had, he actually had a security, one of the very early security systems installed at Rylands. So why did he move to Fitzroy? I mean, he'd squandered the family yeah, fortune and had was, to sell Rylands? That was yeah. the main reason, I think. Yeah, right. I, think I think that... Um, I don't know where the money had gone. He, he, Frank had no interest in money except that it was always there when he wanted it and so he tended. When he bought things, he was ridiculously rash. He um, would buy 100 packets of Marlboro cigarettes and store them up in the pantry, but he'd, he never had carried money, though I've heard stories in which he had $50 notes soaked in in brandy in his, uh, in his bag. But... Um, but normally he didn't have cash. He, he would just send the bill to his accountants, Ernst and Young, and they would pay it. And he never took an interest in what money was being transacted. Um, Peter Cook told a very funny story about him going to Ford's The Chemist and he bought 100 packets of Myelanta, which was his preferred indigestion remedy and a number of other things that he needed, all in bulk. And, and um, when they got out of the shop, Frank turned to Peter and said, look what I got. And he'd stolen a cake of soap from, from the counter. <laughs> this was his little... There was a bit of joy that he got away with little moment of daring. This was, this, was, this was what made the whole thing fun. But Peter said the funny thing was that if he'd ever bothered to read the bills, which Peter did see when they came in, he would have seen one, one cake of soap. They knew, they knew that he was doing it. Um, so there's a very public side, which it could be quite intimidating, I guess. Very. And then yeah. the, the private side, which was incredibly vulnerable. I think so. Um, Joan Harris, uh, yes. Freddie Parslow's wife, told me a story that he'd come over for dinner and fond memories she had of him were, were sitting on the lounge room floor surrounded by her aunties mm. and just, just holding court yeah. with, a, with a cup of tea yes. and sort of loving being with those older women. Yeah, yeah. people that didn't threaten him at all, I yeah. think. That's, that's part of it. Whereas I think in a dressing room, he always needed to establish a pecking order um, and always needed to, uh, to anticipate... Any anybody making a ribald remark about him, you know, he, he just he, he was constantly setting the bar so high in self mockery that um, that uh, no one could uh, could compete. But yeah, I, I, there are a number of stories of his tender heartedness, which which is odd given that he presents as such a a cynic and um, so dismissive of most most humans, really. Um, it was a tragic ending, wasn't it? He, mm. he suffered multiple illnesses. So much. Diabetes, yes. cancer. Yeah. Um, and, and did he have legs amputated? Or? He had toes amputated. Toes, yeah, right. right. Yeah. He, he, um, by the end of his life, I mean, most things in his body weren't working. Um, that's clear. But the, 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 the thing that was actually his core, immediate cause of death was cancer of the esophagus, which was his father's. Really? Same thing. Right? And, yeah. Yeah, which is a, a sort of one of those nice ironies, I suppose. But yeah, he he was um, he was in a very bad way for a long time, and 
he was he was working he was doing a lot of voluntary stuff at Triple R, which was just up the street, uh, alternative radio, and they liked him there and he loved them. He always liked being around young people and not necessarily for sexual reasons. I think no. it was often just that he liked um, their spirit or something. Did he struggle financially towards the end? Or uh, I think he must have, and I, I'm not sure. Um, the, in those days, that cottage in Fitzroy would have been pretty cheap rental. These days, it wouldn't. Um, I don't think that uh, things were nearly as good as they might have been, and nobody can work out precisely where the money went on. I mean, you can buy a lot of my lantern and, 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 and um, a lot of Marlborough cigarettes, but you don't necessarily break the bank. Um, so somehow or other, um, and, and uh, it's quite possible that someone was siphoning some of it off because right. he, he was so... Uh, negligent, really, about his affairs, mm. and so trusting, mm. I suppose. Mm. Um, but it was certainly an invitation to anyone so inclined. Yeah, a lot of people who were very fond of him. I think, even though he'd probably been cruel to all of them, um, a lot of people had seen good things in Frank and and missed his vast presence in their lives. Um, even though he'd been really out of theatre, uh, well, when he died, he hadn't done anything for six years. Um, and, and really, in the 80s, his, his last appearance was as the two butlers in The Importance of Being Earnest for the MTC, yeah. in which he had probably, I don't know, a dozen lines all up to remember because his memory was completely shot. So, yeah, he, he drifted out of that world quite a lot, really, um, and really it was the world of the young filmmakers around Triple R that was his, his uh, social circle uh, mm. in the latter part of his life. Um, but a lot of people obviously had bonds with him that they uh, wanted to acknowledge at the end. What does it say about fathers and sons? Mm. That relationship, that... that... Look, it, it... Frank loved talking about his father. When he, when he did a show at the MTC called Frankly Thring, which was a kind of extended reminiscence, uh, there was a lot of stuff there about his father. Um, even though you'd have to argue that his mother was the more formative figure in a number of different ways in his life. Because um, his father, he knew for only for 10 years, and um, a lot of that time, Frank Senior was overseas on various business-related activities, um, or was just tied up in projects in Australia. So he wasn't exactly a distant father, but he wasn't, a, he wasn't around all that much. And I su- suspect... I mean, how, how do you explain these things? That, that here you have a father who finds his fullest realisation really in, in theatre and film and, and in the relationship between the two, um, and a son who does exactly the same thing. Um, that um, for, for Frank Senior, film was the more significant medium. For Frank Junior, it was theatre. But he had a briefly a very spectacular international film career. Um, so that sense of being conscious of the father, even with the notion, as he must have had at some point, that his father would be appalled if he, if he knew what he was getting up to. Mm. Um, but the need to, uh, to impress the father, you know, to, to be able to say that... Uh, which I think we all, we all want to do, don't we? Yeah. We want a, that approval from I mean, our I, dad. I've been very conscious in, in, of that in my own life. It took me quite a while to get over my father's influence, I think. Uh, and I think I was still 
it kept me a boy for longer than I needed to. Yeah. Uh, so whether that, whether how, in what way Frank was conscious of it, I'm not sure, because, again, he wouldn't be uh, articulate about it except in comic terms. So he had lots of funny stories. He called his father the Simon Legree of Australian film. Um, so it was... Um, it was, but it was certainly you know it was, he wasn't a man that he wanted to expunge from, from his life because of, because of that the extraordinary differences in the ways that they chose to live their lives. It was um, a sense that he was a towering figure with very big shoes to fill, um, and Frank Jr. happened to have the same size feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. A big thanks to Peter Fitzpatrick for uh, giving us a much needed and much desired. A historical record of the achievements of these uh, two fascinating men, Frank Thring Sr. and Frank Thring Jr. I'm sure you'd agree, uh, two fascinating characters. Well, uh, The Two Thrings is a terrific read and it's available from Monash University Publishing. I highly recommend that you find a copy and, uh, and devour more about these two, uh, two fascinating uh, characters. Uh, No doubt you found today's conversation absorbing. Well, there are many more in the Stages archive. Please take a look and have a listen. Don't forget to subscribe if you'd like to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And please do take the time to rate and review the podcast series. I'm Peter Eyes and I hope you can join me regularly every episode for Stages. (laughs) 